It's late summer and the sun is setting on a beautiful beach as gentle waves crash along the shore. The waves inch closer and closer to the dunes, leaving little sand for sunset beachcombers to walk on. The bright full moon begins to rise in the clear night sky, reflecting off the calm water. Not too far away, police are pulling out barricades and closing streets as the water slowly starts creeping over the asphalt roads. Downtown businesses are on high alert, propping sandbags against doorways and lifting displays of merchandise off the floor. Coastal flood warnings have been issued, meaning it's only a matter of hours before the ocean invades and begins flooding low-lying streets. But it's not raining, and there's no hurricane on the way. Local sewers and water lines are just fine. This flooding is from tides, high tides that breach their normal levels and flood adjacent neighborhoods. And these high tide flooding events are becoming more and more frequent in coastal U.S. cities. As climate change accelerates and sea levels rise, many areas are experiencing flooding on sunny days and clear nights. In this episode, we'll be exploring the impacts of high tide flooding and talking with experts about what coastal communities can expect in the years ahead. I'm meteorologist Emily Gracie, and you're listening to Off the Radar, a production of the National Weather Desk. On the show, we dig deep into topics about weather, climate, the ocean, space, and much more. Our goal is to help you better understand the weather and to love it as much as we do. NOAA recently put out a report stating that eight coastal communities along the east and west coast experienced record high tide flooding last year, a trend that's expected to continue in 2024. Today, I'm talking to Dr. William Sweet, an oceanographer with NOAA's National Ocean Service. He'll explain what drives high tide flooding, how it's changing, and the role El Nino will play in the next year. Then we'll hear from Jared Bramblett, a photographer and engineer in Charleston, South Carolina, to understand how he's combining his two passions to bring awareness to the rising water in his community. Sea levels may seem like a slow-moving threat, but as we'll learn, the impacts are already here, and they can be deadly. Stay with us as we dive into the story of sunny day flooding and what it means for communities on the front lines of climate change. But I want to get a little background on high tide flooding because not everybody fully understands what that means. So can you tell me the difference between high tide flooding and other types of flooding? Well, high tide flooding is really the result of decades worth of sea level rise. It happens now for many reasons. It could be a full moon tide, be a change in the prevailing winds could be a storm surge, but more times than not, it's sunny outside, there's water in the streets, and people are scratching their heads asking, what is going on? Yeah, for sure. I used to be a broadcast meteorologist in Charleston, South Carolina, and trying to explain to people why it was sunny and the streets were covered in water was always interesting. So you mentioned the moon and the phases. Can you explain scientifically where that comes from, how the moon and our tides are interacting? Sure. Well, you know, the moon is really the driver of the tides for the most part. The sun in, is involved too. When you have a full moon or new moon, when it's big and bright or you can't see it, the tides are just higher. It's just the way that the geometry works. Uh, and then there are certain times of the year in the fall when the water is warm, it's accumulated a lot of heat. September, October, those full moon or new moon tides hit. Sea levels are already about a foot higher uh, because of just this natural annual cycle in sea levels themselves. And those are the times when Charleston floods, when Annapolis floods, when Norfolk floods, that usually it's in the fall. 
It's an East Coast signature. It's a Gulf Coast signature. Again, it's decades worth of sea level rise coupled with now a garden variety of reasons why communities are flooding. And when it rains, it's just that much more impactful. You mentioned a few cities there. So those are at risk. Are there any other spots in the U.S. that are really vulnerable to this? You know, it really is almost every coastal community in the East and Gulf Coast right now. The West Coast is catching up. Sea levels have not been rising nearly as quickly. Water doesn't move up and down like it does in the East and Gulf Coast because and the West Coast has a very uh, deep, narrow continental shelf. Water just doesn't pile up like it does when you have a very shallow, wide continental shelf. So you, New York, uh, Boston, Atlantic City, Annapolis, Norfolk, Beaufort, North Carolina, you, you just really start picking all of your coastal communities. It's either water coming up through the storm drains, but a lot of these communities now, it's spilling out onto the streets. It's flooding people's properties, flooding businesses. It's slowing commutes. It's slowing commerce. It's weighing on people's patience. Okay. So this report came out kind of going over over the past year. Why has the past year seen more high tide flooding? I know you mentioned sea level rise, but that's kind of a long-term issue. So in the short term, what's been causing it? Well, last year we had a few record breakers. Um, we had, it was a La Nina. So there's climate patterns too that are, that are at play on top of sea level rise. Uh, last year we had a couple of tropical storms, hurricanes that brushed or made direct landfall that, you know, that counts too. You know, that's causing flooding. Um, and that was really sort of the driver of a few of the record breakers in the Caribbean and Southern Florida. But Looking towards next year, we're moving into a phase of El Nino. Now, El Nino changes things. El Ninos tend to cause higher sea levels on the West Coast, higher sea levels on the East Coast, and more storms that are oriented towards the Mid-Atlantic region of the East Coast. And so what we're expecting is even more risk, more chance of high tide flooding, let's say, as compared to last year or the year before. Okay, so how do you measure and forecast these? Let's start with the measurement. So it all stems from our tide gauge network. You know, these tide gauges have been on the ground for over 100 years in many locations. They're there to make sure we have safe shipping, high tide, low tide. You know, our, our, from the very beginning of this country, it was really based upon maritime commerce. Believe it or not, it still is. And these sentinels at the sea are there for many purposes but they're also capturing the creep of sea level. And when we pair this with knowledge on the ground, working with local emergency response managers and the National Weather Service, through years of impact monitoring, they know when water gets so high, as measured by a tide gauge, a ruler, if you will, when water hits three feet or four feet, types of impacts will happen. Water in the streets, water coming out of the stormwater system, and they have three severity levels. And what we're talking about now is more of the minor flooding, nuisance flooding. It's mostly disruptive, not downright damaging. But when the water levels hit these heights, we measure it, we report it, and we now anticipate it and predict it. There's such a strong trend due to sea level rise that we have a pretty good understanding that the past is going to repeat itself. But unfortunately, uh, it's moving upwards, and we just characterize this future based upon the past and El Nino, La Nina, some other major climate drivers as we know they're going to unfold. We are able now to make predictions so communities know what to 
uh, prepare for and budget and be ready. I know the Weather Service is coming out with some new flood mapping uh, techniques. Is that something that will be integrated into coastal flooding as well, or is that more river flooding? They are focused largely on river flooding, but we definitely, with some uh, with the infrastructure bill that was passed a few years ago, there is definitely an emphasis to make sure folks better understand flood risk in general, whether it's riverine flooding or coastal flooding. We need folks to be prepared. Whether it's, you know, watch out, something's coming two, three, four days ahead of time, be prepared. Now we're really starting to try to give better emphasis on what to expect next month, next season, and next year. So again, the mobilization costs are going up as folks need to respond to, uh, you know, impacts as they start to pile up in these communities. Now, Eventually, the long-term fixes with sea level rise, I know it's a conversation in places like Miami and Charleston and Norfolk. You know, these are real, you know, the telltales of what's coming along a lot of the other coasts. You know, they're really trying to get ahead of it and tackle this problem. But until long-term solutions are put in place, there's going to be a real need for guidance on sort of the monthly, seasonal, annual basis to complement the weather forecasting two to four-day outlooks that we already provide. Yeah, those cities you named, it was a lot of familiar cities um, with the Dutch dialogues. Uh, Have you seen, I need some good news here, have you seen some progress made in infrastructure and changes in cities that are changing to become more flood resistant? Absolutely. You know, I think the first step is identifying the problem and realizing why that problem is growing worse. And much of it is sea level rise. And so in conversation with, let's say, the Dutch dialogues, the you know, a country that's you know, right at the edge, a lot of it's below sea level. How do you live with higher water? I think communities are really starting to sort of look internally and holistically at, you know, what's important to them, you know, what ports, what streets, what areas need to stay viable, where, you know, where might they allow water to, you know, infiltrate within these communities and live with it and plan green or gray infrastructure as needed to provide that protection um, you know, pumps, you know, there's a variety of responses. For the most part, the solutions are found and funded locally. And so I think it's really important as these communities really take the lead in, and unfortunately having to take the lead in being prepared, uh, you know, share and, and work together so that other communities can can learn and, and live accordingly and maintain a viable coastline because it's so strategically important to us as national security, but commerce driven uh, society that we live in. Awesome. Well, we'll leave it on that high note. Uh, anything else you want to add? I just would like to add that NOAA and our federal partners recognize the importance of the problem of, you know, the magnitude of which these communities are facing. So we're we're hand in hand, lockstep with these communities and make sure that they have the data, the models, the information to make the smart decisions. So we're here in the long haul with you. Jared Bramblett is a photographer and civil engineer based in Charleston, South Carolina, who has worked on flood mitigation projects in the past. He combines his engineering background and artistic eye to document nuisance flooding in his community and raise awareness about sea level rise. I've seen his pictures on Instagram. I reached out to him and I met Jared years ago. He's super nice and great to talk to. And he'll share what he's witnessed on the ground during Hurricane Idalia and what he's seen over the years while taking impactful photos of tidal flooding. 
So can you give me some background on how you got started taking photos of high water in Charleston? Yeah, so I'm a civil engineer by education and background and profession and uh, have spent most of my career in Charleston working in water resources, flood mitigation, um, and over really the past eight or so years, really a focus and passion for flood resilience as we look at changing rainfall patterns and sea level rise and climate change. It was kind of the intersection of working on some large drainage projects for the city of Charleston years ago, uh, being out, observing it happened to be, oh gosh, I think it was September of 2015. So right before the October 2015 thousand year flood event that everybody remembers. Um, and we had some king tides and I was taking pictures of them for a work project, not so much for a personal project. And then it all just kind of intersected and the, the cross section of photography along with my background as an engineer led to kind of documenting the different types of flooding we see, um, why why I think it's important. Um, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. A lot of people don't understand the differences between the different types of flood events we see. So that's, that's kind of one of the reasons that I started the project. And then in 2020, I, I had so many different photos of flooding and different events. And in the middle of the pandemic where you found more time to do things that you didn't have before, I decided to pull it together in a project and have been pretty blown away by the response that I've gotten to it. Yeah, it's kind of a, a different kind of storm chasing, um, but it's certainly just as dangerous. So can you take me through the process of how you actually maneuver through high water to take these photos? It, it's funny you say that. I get a lot of people that are like, oh, Jared's a storm chaser. And uh, I, guess, I guess first thing I would say is if, if there was ever evacuation order or something called in place, I would most likely heed the evacuation order and not be out taking the photos. I've been fortunate to know some people uh, that that have given me rides or let me tag along and see some things. Um, a photo I had of Irma back in 2017 was really the only photo I would say that I've ever truly gone viral. It was used on the Weather Channel and it's, it's water on both sides of the battery. And so it was that one kind of took a life of its own. But it also, I think gave me the flood photographer reputa reputation that I have here locally. Um, but I, I try to be safe. I will say this past time, I was trying to be safe. I have waders on. I was actually on a bicycle. And there was a moment when I was leaving my house to go down. It was as the surge was really starting to come in. Then I, the, the gust of wind came through and I was like, maybe this isn't the safest idea. Maybe this isn't the best idea. And I was like, let's, let's be safe and make it through. And luckily the wind never really picked up more. And that was one of the only like, rough gusts I saw where I really felt unsafe. Can you talk about Idalia? Because this was a one for the record books as far as storm surge in Charleston. Can you tell me what that was like being out in it and how it compares to some of the past events you've covered? You know, it's funny. I said, uh, referenced Irma and Irma got uh, probably about eight or nine inches higher than Adelia got. And I was out photographing it. But at the peak of Irma's surge, I was sheltering in place in a parking garage because there was a tornado warning. Um, and so actually got stuck in the garage because a surge came in and surrounded the garage that time. But so I, around town and down in the battery in those areas, I never actually saw the water as high as I saw it. Uh, it's the fifth highest tide we've ever seen. Um, almost it was within an inch, I think, of Hurricane Matthew's surge back in 2016. Seeing water in places that you're not used to seeing water. I mean, you're used to seeing it on the battery. Uh, you're used to the flooding down in South Abroad where we filled in the creeks. But seeing it in some other areas, kind of on the upper peninsula in Morrison Drive and overtopping berms that had been built to try to keep the the higher king tides out. Um, just, just seeing that volume of water come in and kind of surround places that you normally see dry is pretty wild. 
So I'm curious, you're an engineer, you're working on some solutions here. <laughs> um, how do you balance this, what you're seeing and what your day job is? Does that, does what you see in the evening when you go out and shoot high water affect what you're doing at work? It definitely informs, I think, how I look at it and how I think about what we can do at it. I'm not actually working on any projects in Charleston right now locally that are working to address it. But but I think you can keep the water out to a certain point, and I think we need to be exploring that. But I think you also need to look at ways. I mean, we, we filled so many creeks on the peninsula that when it rains, not tidal flooding, when it rains, it, it also floods in those areas. And so looking at ways to to sustainably and resiliently manage the water kind of inside whatever you build to keep the water out. It's kind of a double-edged sword. You don't want to build a bathtub that's going to flood when it rains just to keep the tides out. So it's kind of balancing that pattern. And I think that's that's what you're seeing people, a lot of coastal communities kind of fight and deal with. Yeah. Well, speaking of other communities, do you ever go to other cities to shoot? Uh, I have not just out of convenience. I mean, if I was somewhere (laughs) and it was flooding, uh, again, I, I guess I just like to I don't consider myself a storm chaser or or, or one of those uh, freelance <laughs> meteorologists that goes out and does does the chasing. Yeah. Um, I have seen them, especially last year when we had Ian coming in. It's kind of wild to see them all descend around on, on Charleston and, and their own personal cars. But um, that's not me. But I do think I, I do enjoy going out. I mean, I do. I, 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 lo- I like documenting and see what it is. And I do. I think I learn something every time I'm out. Do you think you'll stick with flooding or do you think you'll ever maybe shoot up to the clouds or pick something else up as far as natural disasters. <laughs> um, I, I haven't planned on going anywhere else other than flooding or um, really just kind of what what we're fighting here in Charleston. If I moved somewhere else and it was some sort of other problem, maybe I would. What's interesting about your pictures, too, is that they're so impactful, but they're also really beautiful, which then, you know, I look at them and I think, well, I feel bad that I think this is really a beautiful picture <laughs> because this is destruction happening. So you're really on the front lines of seeing that's how this impacts communities and people. And what are you seeing when you when you shoot? Do you ever shoot people and their reaction to flooding or do you stick with mostly the water itself? I have mostly stuck to the water itself. There was a time um, it was a stormwater flood about two years ago. So just a random summer afternoon and a, a big heavy rain we got. And I was over on the west side um, near Gadsden Green and the streets were flooded and a, a, a big truck came plowing through and it's in a big wake and it's coming in people's front doors and, and going into their cars. And I talked to a gentleman that had lived there for I don't know, probably 20 or 25 years. And he was just complaining about the lack of progress and the police not closing the streets and allowing people to drive through them. And um, I do think that there is a um, a really interesting social dynamic I would like to like to try to capture. I'm, I'm not a journalist, though, either. So I, I, I think that would be teaming with somebody that, that helped me along the way. But I, I would like to capture more of the human aspect and the impacts of this. I think you are a journalist, but... All right. Last question. Um, Weather and photography and storm chasers and pictures. There's been a little bit of controversy lately on social media because every once in a while a picture will pop up that um, is clearly to me AI generated, but not clear to everyone who perhaps isn't a meteorologist or an expert. And I noticed that you've been dabbling a little bit in, um, you know, seeing what AI can create when it comes to flooding photography. Can you give me your your two cents on the role of AI when it comes to these images that are generated? You know, I'm really not sure what the role is yet. I do think that there's definitely, and playing around with it, and I am nowhere near an expert in AI image generation. But I think as we look at solutions and what solutions could look like in the built environment, I do think there's a, a really unique opportunity there to like 
use it to our advantage and quickly generate some visuals. Obviously, there's the sinister side of it that could present things that don't happen. I mean, the one that you think about all the time is the sharks or the alligators swimming in waters that are flooded. Right, that you see right. Every time a hurricane. Yes. AI to me and, and my dabblings with it's not necessarily, it knows what Charleston is and what Charleston looks like or it's supposed to look like, but it doesn't know actual locations. It doesn't know real places. And I, there's certainly ways that you could teach it what those places are and it could envision it, but I haven't gotten to that point. I'm not sure that I will. Um, I do think from a narrative standpoint, though, going back to a narrative, I think there's ways that you could create things that are AI, make sure that the audience understands that it's AI, but also that have some, some sh- I don't know if shock value is the right angle that I'm looking for, but that make people think more in depth about what's going on and what can be done about it. To see Jared's amazing photos, make sure you check out his website, meanhighwater.com. You can also see our video version of the interview with Jared featuring those images on our YouTube channel. Just search National Weather Desk. Thanks to Jared and Dr. Sweet for joining me today. Off the Radar is a production of the National Weather Desk. Make sure you're following the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes publish every Tuesday. If you know someone that's interested in learning more about high tide flooding or climate change, please share this episode with them. We'd also love you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Let us know what you think of the show and you can give me some ideas for future episodes. Special thanks to Ryan Berlin for his help on this episode. I am meteorologist Emily Gracie. Make it a great day. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.